When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. In this episode, I'm joined by Texas A&M philosophy PhD student, Jared Oliphant, Oliphant I believe, uh, to talk about some of the, the cool stuff that he's been working on in the philosophy of language. So uh, without further ado, let's just let's jump right into it. Jared, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Hey, thanks for having me, Parker. Good to be with you. <laughs> It's it's elephant, right? That's it. Yep, you elephant. got it. Okay, I, mean, okay. We I always want to say all kinds of uh, pronunciations, but that's the one that we do ourselves. Okay, yeah. all right. Uh, and and some of my guests uh, or some of my listeners will know immediately uh, that name from uh, Dr. K. Scott Elephant, who is your father, correct? That's right. Yep. That's all right. It. And, and he's he's been at Westminster for a while, and all of us Ventilians are really indebted to him for all of his notes and all the books and everything like that. So. Uh, this is this is fun because you're not following uh, in the theology steps. You're following in in philosophy. Uh, so I just wanted to ask you, man, how did you get into philosophy? Yeah, um, I mean, for me, it was there's kind of two answers to this, but uh, one is you know I my freshman year uh, I took in college I took um, a philosophy course. And it was like this, it was almost like a mini course. I think they did like a, a quad course, like half a semester. Mm-hmm. And it was on uh, great traditions and ethics. And um, it was taught by a guy named Basically, he was a he was a student at Westminster, and he was he fo- kind of followed in Van Til's footsteps. Um, and I didn't know much of his background at the time, but he started you know, lecturing and presenting this kind of material. And I just fell in love with thinking about things deeply, thinking about big ideas. And I, I mean, I truly didn't know what philosophy was until that point. And he starts talking and, and uh, describes what the course is going to be about. And I just, I thought we were getting away with something. I, I didn't know that there was a discipline where you could kind of write about stuff that you're interested in and think about big ideas. Um, the second part of that answer is I, I'd always just sort of thought that way. I, I wondered about things and I was curious about things. And so, yeah, being in this class made me think, I, okay, well, this is, this is a discipline that I want to pursue a little bit more. I don't know what's going on here, but I, I like wondering and, about things and being curious about things and, and thinking deeply and those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I, I ended up being a philosophy major. I, I entered college wanted to be like a computer science major or something, just because I thought there would yeah. be some jobs at the end of it. Uh, <laughs> but that didn't work out too well. So philosophy is uh, is a thing that I chose. You you went from uh, a field that has a lot of jobs to a field where, where there's not a whole lot of jobs there available. 
Yeah, no one was telling me that at the time. And it was the the job market was a little bit better uh, back then. Right now, especially with COVID, it's it's completely horrendous. But yeah, I, um, I maybe thankfully no one told me that at the time because yeah. I don't know if I would have been steered differently. Yeah. So so you did your your undergrad in philosophy, and then uh, if I'm not mistaken, you, you did go to Westminster, and, and you got your MDiv there. Is that right? Uh, I started out in the MDiv program. Yeah, I went right from graduating college to like two months later doing summer Greek and right into uh, the MDiv program that changed to the MAR um, as I got more into uh, studies, uh, Master of Arts in Religion. And so that's what I graduated with. Um, and yeah, and then, um, yeah, I don't need to go into the, the rest of the deal, but that basically just entered the normal job market after that. I because I went straight into seminary, I was a little bit burned out on academics yeah. and just needed to step back a little bit um, from that whole world. So it took a little bit of a break. Yeah. Well, uh, can you help, help me out with the, the MAR? Is that is that like an apologetics degree or what's that like? It, yeah, I mean, it, good question. It depends on the seminary. They, you know, uh, a lot of seminaries do it differently. The way that Westminster did it was, it was sort of like a truncated version of the MDiv. It didn't have the the pastoral elements. I never, um, I never had any inclinations towards the pastor. I always knew that I wanted to like teach and go into academics on some level, but I really wanted the theological groundwork. Um, and so that's part of the reason why I went to Westminster. But the MAR takes care of a lot of the, you know, systematic the- theological. There, there are different tracks, right? There's biblical yeah. studies, there's systematic theological. And I was more on like the apologetic systematic theological track. Um, so I, I didn't need to do like preaching classes and stuff yeah. like that. That's great. Yeah, I, I, I'm doing the same here at TED's. And everyone's like, are you doing an MDiv? I'm like, I don't really want to be a, a pastor, man. I don't want to preach or anything. Uh, and I always get crap for that here, but yeah, that's, that's cool to, to see that I'm, I'm in good company here. Um, but so, so that brings us to, to your, your current studies and you're at, you're at Texas A&M and you're studying yeah. philosophy of language, right? And so I, I think you, well, actually you, you explained to me, um, are you studying philosophy of language? Is that what you would say to people? It's kind of a hybrid. It's uh, okay. at least what I'm looking at right now is it's the the metaphysics of language, um, and so it there, you know, we'll see what happens. But I envision right now having two uh, AOS's areas of specialization: mm-hmm. one being in metaphysics, and the other being in philosophy of language, um, uh, because that yeah. So the I'm using the the idea is to use a lot of the metaphysical tools in analytic philosophy and apply them to uh, what language is and the different parts of language and the different objects and entities that compose language. Okay, that makes sense. Well, so that, that brings me to another question, uh, just the relation between philosophy of language and the other sub-disciplines. Um, yeah. you, people usually think when, when you think big picture about philosophy, you got epistemology, metaphysics, and value theory, or uh, aesthetics, whatever, um, uh, axiology, value theory, axiology. Does philosophy of language neatly fit in one of those or is it uh, its own discipline? Because I know there's a lot of overlap. And like you said, you're you're doing metaphysics of of language here. Yeah. um, Yeah, let's see. I mean, I'll I'll answer it this way and see if I'm actually answering your question. But um, it's it's a very live uh, discipline. I mean, it's kind of 
how should I even put it? I don't want it to sound too foundational, but in a sense, it is sort of foundational to analytic philosophy because um, of just the history and how analytic philosophy started. I mean, with the linguistic turn in the late 19th, early 20th century, and the focus on language and formal languages and um, just the explosion of the relationship between like mathematics and logic um, that happened within the 20th century uh, and the emphasis on being like, extremely precise in um, conceptual analysis, then methodologically, you're going to have a lot of linguistic issues that come into play for whatever discipline you're getting into, whether that be epistemology, metaphysics, value theory, philosophy of science, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but it's it's definitely in the mix there with all those other sort of, you know, historically important um, yeah. yeah, other fields. Yeah, yeah, that that helps. So I, uh, when I start, first started studying philosophy, it was because of apologetics. I got in through some Van Til and realized I need some theology, and then realized I need some philosophy as well. And I, I started, um, I inherited like a lot of uh, begrudging of philosophy of language. And you yeah. read some apologetics books, and I don't think you can write an apologetics book today without kicking around the uh, logical positivists. Like you just have <laughs> right. to. Everyone's got a little bit on that. You got you got to quote C.S. Lewis, and you got to kick around the the positivists. And so I kind of inherited that, like, you know, that's where philosophy went wrong to turn to language. Uh, and then now I'm kind of coming full circle and realizing, like you said, how foundational it is and historically, but, but actually, you know, practically like we're talking right now with language, we wouldn't be able to speak about, we wouldn't be able to pick out the aspect that we want without language. And it's huge. God created the world with language. And so I kind of come full circle on that. Um, but I wonder how did you get into the the metaphysics of language? Like, why why did that uh, draw your attention? Yeah, I think you know, biographically, it was something like this. I'm still trying to piece that together. I mean, yeah. I look back and I go, "What was the thinking there?" Because I I entered the program really wanting to focus on abstract objects mm-hmm. uh, and what are they, what are they like, and I mean, when I when I entered the program. I look at myself then and I just, I didn't know Jack about Jack. Um, you know, I, I, there was this idea where like I was going, Oh, this is an interesting question. Like what are abstract objects? And then come to find out, you know, extremely brilliant, brilliant people have been thinking about this for decades and decades. And, um, and, and in ways that, you know, uh, really are accelerated beyond where I'm at right now. Mm-hmm. certainly where I started, in the program. But to answer your question, I think what it was, was I was interested in abstract objects. And so I took a little bit of a look at the literature, like, what are people saying? Let me get some some basic ideas down on, on what's going on in the debates. And um, there were a lot of discussions uh, surrounding, you know, do they exist or not? And a lot of there were there were many different approaches, which I don't need to go into. You know, there's fictionalism about abstract objects and, and those sorts of views that uh, want to say, OK, maybe there's something going on, but they don't exist in the same way that we think, you know, tables and chairs exist or, right. or something like that. And um, sometimes I would hear something like this. Um, it would be, OK, well, this is, you know, we, we talk about properties. We talk about other abstract objects, numbers, and it's just a way of speaking. Yeah. And I thought, okay, to me, that didn't seem like a much of a, an answer or a satisfying answer. I wanted to go, 
well, then what's speaking? Like, it sort of assumes that a way of speaking is maybe nominalistically acceptable, um, and that that's that's a. So I'm I'm paraphrasing. There aren't philosophically sophisticated arguments that just boil down to that sort of approach. Right. But again, just talking um, loosely, that's kind of a way that some people want to get around the existence of ab- abstract objects. Is is just to say, well, it's metaphorical, and we're just kind of speaking this way, and it's not really referring to any actual entities. And I think that's how I got into the metaphysics of language is to go, okay, but what is language then? Can we make language itself um, Mm. either physicalist or or what's the ontology of language? What's the best account uh, metaphysically for what language is in all its parts? Yeah, man, that's so, it's so interesting. And and for, for the listeners, uh, who it might sound pedantic at first. And, and if you get into like Russell's, uh, you know, theories, uh, and you get into the reference and all that, it's like, dude, Russell wrote like three chapters on the word the, you know, and it's like, right. what, what this is crazy. And then you actually get into it and you're like, wow, this is crazy. And then you see what we're doing right now is a really crazy thing using words and, and meaning and understanding each other and talking about the world. It's crazy. I really like that. Absolutely. You, well, and and so so you you work on the ontology of language. Are you also working on the the ethics? Are you, are you pursuing that as well? Yeah, the the hope is um, to, and this will be a little bit later this semester, I hope, um, okay. where I take some of the framework and observations that I've made on the ontological and metaphysical questions, and then go, okay, so. What's going on with uh, some of the ethical issues involved in language? Because, uh, well, it's it's especially relevant today because there are a lot of issues surrounding freedom of speech, mm-hmm. language, right. a lot of issues surrounding like what is hate speech? What's going So you have language and then you have sort of this extra layer of um, ethics in, involved and these, these other um, elements that are involved in linguistic objects. Um, hate or kindness or yeah. you know a lot of uh a lot of those elements um really charged words surrounding uh what language is and so the hope is to figure out what's going on there in relation to the metaphysics that i've already done and that might be a loose connection i haven't you can see i haven't totally worked that out yet mm-hmm. but um i think i'm at least interested in the question for so things like honesty um, that is related to truth and expression. Those are the kinds of things that I'm going to be looking at, hopefully. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Do you think that understanding the ontology will help us get get clear on the ethics of language or, or can they come apart easily enough? That's a good question. I, yeah, that's an unknown for me right now. Mm-hmm. I, I just haven't pursued it enough. I mean, I think, uh, again, the the um yeah so recognizing like the limits of of what you can do when you study the metaphysics of language it i think the best you can do is it it provides like a framework okay. it provides you with uh some sort of framework that says when i am referring to uh different kinds of objects what are the characteristics of those objects and language that i'm referring to how can we get more precise and clear mm. on those sorts of things that's really like the step one goal okay. um yeah that's awesome. Uh, can you can you help us? Can you fill it? So for me, I I didn't like philosophy of language. I thought that that I kind of picked up that trope from apologists, and uh, and it was my own fault as well. But now coming back around, seeing how interesting it is, seeing how cool everything in in the philosophy of language is, uh, 
it's it's interesting to see that this is still such a like burgeoning uh, field because this is where it started. And yet there's still all this work going on. Can you fill us in just on a, a couple of things that are going on lately in the philosophy of language? Yeah, let's see. Um, boy, that's a great question. I One, yeah. So, you know, it, as I look at journals in my limited capacity, yeah. one um, area of research, and if you ask me a lot of follow-up questions on this, I'm not going to be able to answer it because I haven't been able yeah, to dive pretty <laughs> deeply into it. But one area that has received a decent amount of, ten- of attention is conceptual engineering. Hmm. And um, the issues involved in that, again, I, I can't, I'm not able right now because I haven't really studied it much. Yeah. Um, but uh, like there was a recent article by David Chalmers um, where he wanted to conceptually engineer the concept of conceptual engineering. <laughs> so he has like this meta level of like, what's going on with conceptual? Like, what do we mean by that? What sorts uh-huh. of things does it refer to? Um, how do we, in one sense, like uh, improve our language so that it's either more accurate or reflects the intuitive ideas that we want when we express um, something. And uh, so, yeah, that's a, that's a very simplistic answer to your question is there's a lot of articles being written about that recently. Yeah. Um, the details of which are still a little foggy in my mind. Um, I don't know if I'll get into it that much, but yeah, yeah it's, it's an interesting question. Yeah. I think, I think when we talked before, you, you might've said something about slurs, about how a lot of people are working on slurs. Is that, am I remembering that right? Yeah. I mean, pejoratives are popular um, partially because it's so applicable to the political situation, the social media online situation. Um, and it's just, you know, when, when you're talking about, uh, you know, the ethics and harms in that way, people uh, usually have some sort of personal connection to that. I can remember when, you know, something negative was said about me mm-hmm. uh, and, and certain words were used. So um, yeah, that's, that's a field. Again, that's not something that I've personally gone into, but it's still a live, uh, I guess, debate or discussion that's going on right now within the philosophy of language. Like how do you apply philosophy of language principles to this certain class of expressions? Yeah. That, that's so interesting to me because, uh, like you said, it pops up in politics a lot, but even maybe a, a year or two ago, uh, some journalist was talking about how uh, how truckers are going to be out of work soon with automated truck driving and stuff like that. And oh. they said like, oh, learn to code. And then everyone turned that against the journalists and we're like, well, when journalists go out, just learn to code. And then one journalist said like that, that's like a, a, a slur to us. You know, that's like should be hate speech. And just being like, what are we talking about here? You know, I think <laughs> that's so applicable. was a pejorative. What's that? What what part of that expression was the pejorative? Learn to code, I guess, was like, huh. they, they, they said that whole sentence, that phrase was like, I think they said it was like the N-word. And everyone's like, dude, um, no, it's not. You don't get to say that. So I, I think that's so interesting looking at the philosophy of it instead of just the emotional response. Uh, and looking, why, yeah. why do we have this emotional response? Not, not that emotions are bad, but why? Is it right? Is it wrong? How do we think through? Yeah, philosophy yeah. of language. It's all there. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's really I mean, that's the hook that gets you into the topic. And then, uh, right, thinking about um, the issues a little bit more deeply than sort of like a knee jerk emotional reaction is is the value of taking some of those tools and saying, let's get specific on on what you mean. Is is that a good argument that you can compare those those couple things? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just real quick here. um, 
maybe could you help us? I know there's going to be a lot of overlap. Can you help us think through the, like a difference between like a linguist and a philosopher of language? Do you, do you have a clear conception of that? Yeah, let me see if I can take a stab at it. I mean, the um, there yeah, there is overlap for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the area of linguistics again, I'm not a specialist in the area of linguistics, but from what I can tell from the literature that does overlap, you know, linguistics is uh, much more squarely in the scientific realm, and so it's okay. studying what actually does go on with language, the syntax, the semantics. Um, comparative analysis uh, between different languages um, and then intra-language comparison as well. So uh, I'm sure, you know, different kinds of like dialects, what's going on there with English. And uh, a lot of that data for philosophers of language is used to think about categories and um other other questions uh, involving like reference theory or um, or even conceptual engineering or something like that, um, yeah. and so it's going to be a little bit more broader than just looking at the data of like how do people use this phrase that word comparing it to um, you know other languages that sort of thing. So yeah, lingu- linguistics is much more in the scientific realm. Philosophy of language, um, while it definitely veers into that territory um, a decent amount, it's going to be backing up a little bit, looking at big picture questions. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, well, so I wanted to, to jump in on uh, some some of your work, some of the things that you're, you've been working on, you've been talking to me about, which has been really helpful. And I, I think it's funny because, again, going back to the logical positivists, uh, they wanted to you know nix all metaphysics, and here you are working on the metaphysics of language. You know, they're their pride and joy. So I think that's funny. But uh, I wanted to go over this this problem in philosophy of language. Uh, and we, we talked about it on the podcast. Uh, I did an episode on the problem of definition. And it's kind of old. It's it's like uh, going over Mortimer Adler's work and like the ancient problem of defining things. And in, in my reading of that, I found uh, realists, nominalists, and then pragmatists as well. So like a realist said that we can define things by their essence and a nominalist, nominalist says we define things in name, name only. And then a pragmatist says we just define things for our own uses. Um, yeah. And so I, wa- I wanted to get into uh, what you've talked about with uh, linguistic entities and like the, the metaphysics of that. I wonder, is there, are there still these three kind of categories? Are there still pragmatists out there or is it really just between like, realists and, and nominalists? Is that the debate today? Yeah, good question. Um, I, let's see if I can sort that out. I mean, there in in approaches to metaphysics in general, mm-hmm. there, yeah, the the realist nominalist debate is still live. Okay. And then uh, on the other side, on the philosophy of language side, pragmatics is a very live, um, ongoing field, uh, within philosophy of language that studies how language is being used, whatever that means. Um, and then there are positions within pragmatic, you know, pragmatic discussions of, is it realist or anomalous? So that's how I would kind of frame those different categories. Um, so I'm, I'm not, I don't know if that tracks with what you've been looking at. I think it does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah. So that's all I'll say on on the categorization. But uh, yeah, well, so what so, am I missing? Well, uh, I think that's good. I, um, so f- just following up on that, uh, we, I want to talk about linguistic entities and, and you know what they are. But I think we got to talk about properties probably first. 
are, are, are all linguistic entities properties? No. So yeah, good question. So, uh, okay. So first let me back up. I forgot yeah, to mention this. So on, on, uh, definition, at least the, one of the dominant ways to define things within analytic philosophy is to give necessary and sufficient conditions for whatever term you're defining. And that's notoriously extremely difficult for just about anything. Yeah. I mean, the number of papers that I read that start off and go, here's what I'm talking about. I can't give necessary and sufficient conditions for this, but let me try to get at this idea this way. That's a very common way because it's it's recognized that giving that sort of precise definition for something is just really difficult. You take the whole um, paper probably, right? Yeah, or it would just – yeah, maybe, but really the, the primary problem is coming up with counterexamples. Ah. If you say there's a necessary – and sufficient condition for X, then it's very easy for someone to come along and say, well, what about this over here? Mm. Um, and that goes for a lot of different things. Uh, so I, again, I'm generalizing, but that's that's the state of, of defining things in analytic philosophy. It's just really d- difficult to do. Is, is that stipulative? Is that just, uh, we're just sticking with stipulative definitions? Here's what I mean by this? Or are you saying it's even even less than that? Just saying, I, I just let's talk about this thing. Don't push me on that. It's it's broader, I think, than that. I mean, if okay. you you know the the common you know take like a bachelor, right? What are the necessary and sufficient conditions for being a bachelor? Um, necessary that it's male. Um, sufficient, I guess, for it to being unmarried. I don't know. I haven't mm-hmm. thought through uh, <laughs> definition of bachelor in much detail, but it's something like that. So that's more of an easy case. But um, when when philosophers talk about um, any subject, when they write about anything whatsoever, it's extremely important to fix the terms that they're talking about so that you know, okay, this is how, this is what I mean by this thing, because it could be even, even let's say nominalism. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what do I mean by nominalism? What, am I, what do I mean by um, that, that school of thought? And yeah. one nominalist is going to be very different from another one, potentially. Right. And you have different versions of nominalism, right? You have ostrich nominalism and yeah. austere nominalism. And those are categorized very differently. Uh, so that's the idea, is it's just really difficult to pin those sorts of things down. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so we got that and that's, it's so tricky. Um, but, but moving on to like, uh, linguistic entities and, and properties. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you explain the, the, the relationship? What do we talk? What is a linguistic entity? What's a property? What are we talking about here? Yeah. A linguistic object or entity, it, you can use either one. Okay. Um, uh, most of the time. I mean, some people have, you know, quirky um, hangups about different count noun terms like entity or object. But yeah, I think that it's fine to use either one. But a linguistic entity is something like uh, an inscription. It's something mm-hmm. like um, an utterance. It can be something like a proposition. If you think those are live uh, objects that uh, you can refer to and use and that are involved in language, um, they can be like uh, American Sign Language gestures. If oh, you want. Yeah. Um, yeah. Things, objects that are used in communication and language, that's really, it's very, it's that broad. Um, and so, I mean, the question is like, how, how far do you take that? Like, is a, is a stoplight? A linguistic entity, hmm. probably not. But again, like these are sort of, you know, as I see it, these are sort of conventions uh, that it, it, 
so speaking of pragmatics, I think, you know, if we, if we categorize like a stoplight as a linguistic entity, we'd have to stretch our idea of what actual language is. I think it communicates something. Um, so one of the, one of the data points that, that might be interesting um, to get at what people talk about in the metaphysics of language is you have all these different sorts of objects, um, right? If you look at objects in general, you have trees, you have tables, uh, you have chairs, you might have abstract objects that are in that mix. It depends on what like your furniture of the world is. Yeah. And included in that, you have these sound waves that we call words and sentences. And, and then you have like ink markings and pixely things. And those are linguistic entities of some kind. And let's say I say the word stop. And let's say I see the word stop in like pixely language. And then I see a red light in a certain context. And those are extremely different objects. Yeah. But for some reason, and this is why people are interested in the topic, they all mean stop. They all yeah. mean the same thing, whatever that thing is, they all mean the same thing. And that's at least part of um, that. That might be an entry point to uh, some people to say, well, what's going on? How can those very, very different things mean the same thing in, in a certain sense or do they yeah yeah that's so good and and those all all the the pixel the the picture the actual thing in itself uh, if we can see the thing in itself uh those all are expressing the same univocal meaning of stop right that's the question okay uh i mean it yeah so the question of meaning is one of the central uh, difficulties, challenges, sort of fun things to explore when it talks about when when people talk about um, linguistic entities. Because on one conception, uh, there are meanings. You know, there, a word can have several different meanings, and so yeah. we we quantify over meanings. And if uh, you know, on some uh, metaphysical conceptions, if you qu can quantify over something, then then that means that it exists in some way. Right. Uh, so you can you can go down that road. Um, for people who are uh, strict physicalists, mm -hmm. they don't want to go down that road, obviously, because meanings are not like you can't point to some sort of meaning and go, "Oh, there it is. It's blue, and it's got the, you know, <laughs> it's not concrete." Um, yeah. And so, trying to get around that puzzle, if you're a physicalist, is going to be possibly an issue. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. It's getting spicy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So I, I'm not, I'm not sure if I followed the, the stop light, why that wouldn't be an entity um, because it doesn't, maybe we can get into like tokens and stuff, but is my word for stoplight, is that a linguistic entity? Uh, yes. Yeah. So the reason that I brought the stop line is because it's not that it's an, in, it's not that it's not an entity. It's, it's, uh, it's stretching. So when we think of language, yeah. typically and intuitively, we're not thinking of like light languages, right? Stoplight languages. So yeah. we wouldn't really characterize that as its own language. Okay. I okay. mean, you can make an argument that it is and, and, and do it that, but the the kind of common sense idea of language, ordinary language, let's say, yeah, uh, you wouldn't include a stoplight in. So that's why I brought up that example. That I think, in a very very broad sense, it's a linguistic entity because it communicates stop or halt or something like that. It really doesn't oh, okay. communicate something in English. It's the equivalent in meaning, uh, in some way, with these English yeah. words and German words and and utterances and inscriptions, that sort of thing. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah I 
That, that makes sense. I, I have to like pull from what I know and I, I studied philosophy of mind for a semester. So I'm like, okay, there's like no, it's, it's observer relative, the, the stop sign. Yeah. It, it's yeah. Based on me seeing that and recognizing that. And I'm, I'm making, I'm probably drawing an analogy between this means stop and like the word stop or my concept of stop. Okay. That's helpful. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that, that I mean, you're getting at the heart. Of, so philosophy of mind is very much involved in philosophy of language issues, because um, if you think that intention, intention with a T, mm -hmm. is involved in language somehow, and, and everyone recognizes that it is, but yeah. how, what role does it play? That's really the question that people are, are asking. Then, yeah, philosophy of mind is, is definitely right at the heart of what's going on with language. Um, just one more comment on meaning. It, it yeah, comes to mind. Um, so Peirce, back in the early 20th century, distinguished mm -hmm. uh, kinds of signs. And uh, one kind of a sign would be like a symbolic sign. And that would, so the, the stoplight or, or um, even uh, like utterances and inscriptions, those would be symbolic okay. um, in that it's this thing that symbolizes this other thing. And yeah. there's the relation. Another category uh, that he proposed that's sort of related is iconic. And so in, in that sort of sense, you have a sign where the original uh, is supposed to be similar to like another one. So like a, a picture of me or like, uh, you know, that would represent me um, or signify me in some way. So that's another category. And then the third one was indexical. And so uh, this category is really interesting. I'd actually like to pursue this at some point, but uh, indexical signs are something like a footprint in snow where you say, oh, that, that footprint means this person walked this way or here. Huh. Or if you think of like circles in a tree, right? You count up the circles and that means the tree is a certain age. And there's a causal relationship there that's not necessarily there with those other two categories. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because maybe it'll serve our purposes um, if we if we uh, have those categories down at some point. Man, that's so good. Well, the indexical is an interesting one. Uh, I always make the, the God jump too quick probably, but I'm thinking like you're looking at the rings in a tree and you it, it's it's a, it, I don't know how to say it. It's indexical. It, it stands for the amount of years it's been alive, uh, or it represents that. I don't know. All these yeah, words are, are means loaded. It means it is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Means that it's this this old, but there's no intention with a T unless you're a theist, you know. But there's there's no intention there, and so it, it, it's kind of weird reading that if you don't believe that someone put that there for you to interpret, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um... Right. Yeah. How to, how to, I think, I think that's right. I mean, I want to say something about um, meaning and mind dependence, uh, but I don't know if I could sum it up and articulate it uh, in relation to that example, or maybe even in general, because it's such a tricky question. Yeah. But if you think about the relation between meaning and mind dependence, it's, it's extremely complex given the, the number of various different objects that are out there and the various interpretations that are, attached to them either yeah. actually or possibly yeah well and i think this is one that i did pick up from some apologists but philosophers too uh, the uh it, it's kind of like the argument from reason uh but i think i think Charles richard taylor one of the taylors talked about this this white stone analogy and you know if you look if you're in a train you look on this hill and you see spelled out welcome to disney world uh there's 
at least two different ways that happened. One was someone did that with the intention of telling you welcome to, and you could, you could read that if you believe someone did that with an, an intentional purpose, you could read that for its truth or, or falsity. Oh no, I'm in Ohio or, Oh yeah. Okay. I'm being welcome in Florida. But if, if it happened by chance and someone accidentally spilled a bunch of stones and yeah, the probability is crazy, but it spelled out welcome to Disney world, you'd be like foolish to read that for content because no one's trying to tell you anything. It just happened by chance. And that's kind of what I'm thinking with the rings and the tree. Yeah. Yeah. So if you think there's a, there's a literature um, on artifacts, what are artifacts, what makes something an artifact different from like a natural object. And one of the, uh, in one paper, I don't even remember what it was, but I give the example of, so I give a couple different examples of how to, how to sort out this complicated question. And if someone was walking through a forest, again, this is just thought experiment, but if Mm -hmm. someone was walking through a forest and saw a bunch of sticks on the ground that said help, and for whatever reason, like they, they know, you know, this is like an abandoned place. Like a human didn't do this. You know, would that be the word help? That's one question. And we can, we can kind of zoom out a little bit and say, all right, is that an artifact or not? And compare it to something like this. If you were walking through, you know, a different forest and you came upon like this stump uh, from a tree that had really over time, been naturally like whittled into like a stool yeah would that be a stool and those Mm -hmm. two questions are very similar and sorting out the answer yes or no on those couple things is going to be really similar and the the mind dependence mind independent questions involved with the ontology of those two things again are going to be pretty parallel yeah man that's good so going going back just that that brought me dude we're so far afield from what i told you we're going to talk about thanks so much for indulging me no totally fine (laughs) yeah uh so I'm thinking like the the pragmatist in my head. I, I know a lot of my philosophy friends. They when when someone brings up like the the uh, pragmatic view of truth, they're like, "Dude, no one believes that actually," and it's kind of a joke. But on the popular level, we got guys like Jordan Peterson who are like, "I am a pragmatist," and millions of people are listening to him. And I think of that stool. I wonder if like a pragmatist, uh, whether they exist or not, whatever, if they're able to exist without performative uh, inconsistency, but he might say, well, it's whatever it is for us. So that's a stool because I see it as a stool and I'm going to go use it as a stool. Um, That doesn't really have to do much, but I'm just thinking in, in my head that that's the kind of pragmatist I had in mind. Someone who's like, well, everything is just a tool for us. And it kind of goes with evolutionary theory. You know, our, we've, we've uh, evolved to see things as tools. And so they are what we make them. Right. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I mean that's a it's a really complicated, good um, issue that you're bringing up. I mean, my thought on if so again the the parallels between you know language and other objects like the the found stool in the forest. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's some interesting ambiguity there, uh, <laughs> but uh, so you can you know, other, other objects can be used in different ways. And yeah. so you can use this sort of thing to sit on, but what happens if, uh, you know, you pick that thing up and there's this thing over there that you have to kind of like hammer. And so you use this tool to like hammer in something. Is that thing a hammer? Mm, right. Uh, it's, it's being used like a hammer. Is it, I, I don't know, you know, that's still something that I'm sorting out. Is there yeah. a fact of the matter, whether this is like a stool? Because again, these are, these are objects 
in the in the way that we describe them that are uh, human ar- mind dependent artifacts in some yeah. way. It's made of wood, right? And so, like, you you want to say that um, you you might want to say that natural objects are not mind dependent, depending on what you're referring to when you talk about natural objects. Um, but yeah, things like stools, tables, chairs, cars, those sorts of things are going to be mind-dependent artifacts. And so I don't know if there there's a fact in the matter whether this thing over here is like yeah. a little tiny cup or whether it's a thimble. Yeah, dude, that's so good. I I hope that the listeners are seeing how cool this is because, like, it, we just have these regular things in our lives, and you see a kid playing with a stick as a gun, and it's like, well, did that right. become a gun? Like, there's all these questions you can ask about. It. I love that. Um, yeah. I wanted to get into a little bit more of, of your stuff, uh, being careful not to, to name anything here, but, <clears throat> uh, so, <laughs> yeah. so the, the realism and nominalism, uh, debate, do you call it, are you, are you a, nom- a realist concerning linguistic entities? I think so. I think, yeah. uh, if you press me on the question, I would, um, well, let, let me put it this way. Well, okay. Let me back up. So the, yeah. um, I've written a few things that are out under review in journals. And so that's the reason I'm, I'm not able to name like the title or anything right. like that, because when you submit to, uh, an academic philosophical journal, um, everyone needs to be anonymous and including the reviewer and myself. And yeah. I, I think there's just about zero chance of any reviewer listening to anything that I say, but, um, just in principle, trying to keep that, you know, uh, yeah, this could blow up, man. We get a million. Views <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I, yeah. You, your listeners will be very disappointed. You had Michael Ray on, so this is, <laughs> you know, this is going to be quite a disappointment after yeah, that. We'll but um, no, to answer your question, I'm comfortable, I think with, with being a realist and saying, uh, I do think that things like, um, let me put it this way. We, mm-hmm. we refer to properties and propositions and abstract entities like numbers all the time. Yeah. And I, I'm pretty comfortable doing that kind of thing. And I think, the the arguments that I've seen for not doing that because of any sort of like nominalistic tendency, to me, they don't ring true. Um, yeah. It seems like a lot to try to navigate around those those types of objects. Yeah. So at this point, I'm pretty comfortable with, uh, you know, abstract of being out there. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So when we say realist, it's a realist concerning abstracta like tables and just like the form of this cup and or or cups in general i guess right yeah it depends on what you mean i mean that's a that's a question that i am thinking a lot about right now like what kind of object do we do we refer to when we think of uh, tables what like the the object tables like the, the plurality tables or this this table again this is going to seem very pedantic to people but no, it's something yeah. that that we talk about all the time that like it would be nice to get clear on in a certain way so that we can maybe yeah. move on to other questions and other questions might depend on these sorts of things. So that's why we, we want to sort them out. Um, but yeah, I, 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 put, I, I jumped, I jumped ahead. So I said, I said, you're a realist concerning abstracta in general, like cups and stuff, but, but we were spe- specifically talking about linguistic uh, objects. Yeah. Right. If you think, so the, the concrete abstract distinction um the the most like the the classic kind of intuitive version is like this cup on my table is a concrete object let's mm-hmm. say mm-hmm. a thing like a property or a number uh is going to be an abstract uh entity in some way 
So that's, yeah, that's the way like you, the number one doesn't have any concrete properties or it doesn't smell a certain way, yeah. that sort of thing. Smells are actually a really good example where you want to distinguish between concrete and uh, an abstract oh, okay. object. That's good. So, so like the smell of bacon can only be, uh, is that, uh, there's no form of that. There's no real thing that is the smell of bacon that is instantiated every time someone cooks bacon. Uh, well, like the form of bacon would be abstract. Um, the, the sort of, and this is where the language gets really tricky. The, whatever the object is, that's causing your olfactory senses to activate then that sort of thing traditionally has been concrete. Okay. So I'm like, um, I don't even know how to explain that. I'm like smelled too baconly or something <laughs> on a certain, uh, yeah. If you don't want to commit to, uh, various metaphysical principles, then sure. You can, you can phrase it that way. I'm very comfortable with saying on, on some level, the bacon, you know, smells a certain way. And I, yeah. I, I sense the smell. Okay. Well, there, there's a there's a problem in philosophy of mind called in, inverted qualia or inverted spectrum, and it's like we all ask ourselves when we're kids, like what what if your purple is really my yellow? Right. And it turns out to be a great argument. Uh, well, I think it's a decent argument against physicalism. Uh, you can formulate it that way, but it's it's a really interesting problem. And I wonder does that does that have a, a cousin or or an al- direct analog in in smelling like bacon? How do I know what bacon smells like to you, or is that easier to pick out? I don't know. Yeah, that's a really good question. I definitely have not thought about the fine grain uh, differences between uh, different senses and how yeah. people experience them. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, to my shame, I haven't got a lot into philosophy of mind issues, um, but I'd be really interested in, in what people think about that. Yeah, dude, again, man, I'm, I'm stretching you so far. And it's it's kind of not fair because you're in you're you're like working on your dissertation and stuff so you have to be so specified in one area and i'm like well let's go with bacon yeah so i I, again i seriously appreciate that and just so everyone knows he's so deep like a lot of these guys that i have on especially guys in in your uh position where you guys are working on your dissertation i know you like hours a day you're working on one specific thing so i do appreciate it man no problem. It's all fair game. I mean, if, if mm-hmm. I don't know something, I'm pretty comfortable saying yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, uh, smarter cool. people have looked at it and, <laughs> and more power to them. Yeah. Uh, so I wonder if, if this if this could be a little bit closer to your wheelhouse. Uh, I wanted to talk about uh, like reference to non-existent things like like Sam Sam Gamgee, uh, Sam Wise Gamgee. Um, OK, yeah. Right. Fictional so like, objects. Is he? Yeah. Fictional objects. Is he a. Uh, can can you say that he's a linguistic entity? Because like, yeah, what do you, what do we make of Samwise Gamgee? Yeah. All right. So um, if you Google, uh, let me. I'll say this. So for for any listeners out there, if you want to, uh, if, you know, if you're curious about what the philosophical literature says about something in any topic then fill papers if you mm. google fill papers and enter your your term in you may not have access to some articles because a lot of articles are just not open domain you have to yeah. like i i get them through anm's library and i'm it's a tremendous privilege and I, I love it um so just be aware of that limitation but yeah if you if you entered fictional objects into fill papers you'd i don't even know how many papers you would get um it's a huge topic and it depends on uh so it's a great question but it depends on what your 
at least partially like what your idea of existence is like yeah. what what kind of notion of existence are 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 you committed to or do you think is the the best option um and you know where where i sit on that uh because i'm a realist i'm very comfortable with saying that um, abstract objects exist because I don't limit existence to just concrete entities. Uh, And so when you're talking about like, do numbers exist? Do propositions exist? Those sorts of things. I think we refer to them all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that they are objects of some kind. And so when we refer, so I see fictional objects as abstract entities um, in in some sense. I would qualify that if this was a more um, like kind of, if this was like metaphysics podcast and we get into like the fine grained details of uh, like uh, abstract objects versus contingently non-concrete objects. Yeah. But for our purposes, yeah, I think, you know, that sort of thing is like a fictional object. Um, what you know sherlock holmes is mentioned a lot as an example for uh, as a a fictional object and the the issues um surrounding that involved like sherlock holmes lived in london Mm -hmm. and london is a real city uh and so how do you sort out sentences so this is a philosophy of language question sherlock holmes lived in london and so you're referring to this abstract entity or this fictional object and maybe you're committed to that thing being a fictional entity Mm -hmm. and then you're referring to maybe the real london i'm not sure and what Mm -hmm. is london it's in one sense it's sort of like an abstract entity as well i like what is what is london smell like well it's composed of a lot of different things um and you can generalize that for material objects as well like my cup is sort of like a london right it has different parts and like they are very different um i'm i'm definitely going down a a weird road a weird metaphysical road at this point but to answer your other question um it's it's not exactly a linguistic entity i mean the if I put it in quotes, so I have another paper on quotation where I deal with like what's going on with quotation. It's this very weird phenomena. Hmm. But if I put Sherlock Holmes in quotes, like that would be a linguistic entity. Okay. Um, that's how I would maybe begin to sort those things out. Okay. Yeah, that's that's so good. Uh, I've talked with some metaphysicians and uh, about Samwise. Specifically. I don't know why uh-huh. I always go to Samwise, but uh, yeah, great. Some some have said that. Tolkien just picked out, he picked out a, a possible world and it's like, well, not to diminish his creativity, but he kind of like discovered a possible world, which is middle earth. And since there's this, this vast number of possible worlds, there is a possible world that is middle earth. And as long as, I guess, as long as there's no like contradictions in it or something, I don't know. But, uh, do, yeah. is, is, so would you think of it that way? Like is, is Samwise Gamgee, I guess your view on fictional characters, maybe you don't, you haven't thought through that a ton, but a little bit. Yeah. Um, all right. So my view, let me try to, uh, mark out the terrain a little bit and see if I come down on something. So yeah, there's, um, there is a school of thought that can, that identifies fictional worlds with possible worlds or at least segments of possible worlds. Right. And so Mm -hmm. if you have, let me try not to get ahead of myself. What is a possible world? Um, and what is possibility? That's one question. And um, there's a difference between um, modeling a possible world and set theoretic terms so that it's just this like stack of 
propositions, mm-hmm. you know, an infinite stack of propositions. And then, so there's a, there's a possible world where all of these propositions are true. And then there's another possible world where all of these and all of these can be whatever you want. All of these are false. And then mm-hmm. there's just an uncountably infinite, infinite number of um, worlds in between that. Yeah. Uh, and so that's one conception of, of possible worlds is just a, a lot of propositions that have true and false values that are different. Um, and the difference uh, mar- demarcates one possible world from another. There's also metaphysical possibility, hmm. right? So what, what um, you know, so logical possibility uh, is, is like the, the most broad kind of possibility. And then there's metaphysical possibility. And metaphysical yeah. possibility is sort of, you might think of it as, could this possible world W actually be actualized? Like, could it become concrete theoretically? Yeah. And that get, sort of intuitively gets at the notion of a metaphysically possible world. Why do I say all this? Well, um, you know, fictions, different fictions, uh, like, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, maybe that uh, reflects some sort of segment of some possible world out there maybe maybe even a metaphysically possible world depending on what's going on in there Hmm. there are also um impossible worlds that's a whole field too um where a couple propositions within a possible world can contradict each other whether that's acceptable um so some people think impossible worlds are a live option to believe in and other people don't uh and then within whatever fictional world that might be a possible world you mm-hmm. have fictional entities like samwise yeah and uh and so that's that's sort of where i think i'm at where it is identifying fictional worlds with possible worlds of some kind um one one philosopher who i i think has an incredible understanding of this sort of thing and i think is unbelievably brilliant is ed zalta he's done a lot of work on on fictional objects and his work is just in in a different stratosphere. He's just hmm. an incredible philosopher. He's just in, in the elite category. Um, but he actually has worked all this out formally. And so he defines a situation. He defines a possible world in terms of a situation. He defines um, a story. So there can be abstract objects or fictional objects within what he defines as a story. Huh. And so a story is sort of like this, as I, as I remember, it, it's uh, almost like a subset of a possible world where you could have objects and different scenarios and situations occur within a story. Um, so that's a really complex answer to your question, but um, it alludes to... Uh, of a really complex literature on the topic because these issues are are uh, really difficult to sort through when you're especially when you're trying to combine fictional objects and real world objects and and what does that yeah. look like? Yeah, well, and it and it comes up for me. It's kind of random, but it comes up for me because I was pretty committed to like the Strassonian presupposition and failure of presupposition. Uh, Boss Van Frossen and I, I'm I'm sure you probably know like Don Collette and his view of tag uh he he uses like uh he uses van frossen's interpretation of strassonian presuppositions to say you know the king of france is bald well that's that's neither true nor false because it's a failure failure of presupposition because there is no king of france and so i thought you know that's pretty knocked down i like that and maybe that's how we can draw out van till's tag but then i thought about samwise and i'm like well samwise gamji has red hair or is is brave and it's like, well, right. there is no Samwise Gamgee. But but so then we go to fictional characters. And I'm sure there's probably a distinction between like 
fictional characters and the story that you're bringing up versus like just a, a, a false statement. Like there is a King of France or, or if that is false, but it's so tricky. You get into all this craziness. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I haven't looked at um, the, the theory that you're talking about. You know, if you say that um, a certain proposition is neither true or false, then you're committed to a, a particular view of logic that's going to yeah. be non-classical. And so that, which may be fine, but um, it would be a, a an important commitment um, to make or, or to uh, state because yeah. it has other implications for for the the kind of logic that you're going to mm-hmm. be utilizing throughout the paper. Is that I think that it it commits. I think Van Frosten at least is committed to saying uh, just a failure of bivalence. That's that's okay. And if you like okay. classical logic, you want to say no, it doesn't fail. And I think what what some folks have done is said, well, it's it's nonsense. It it's not actually so. It's neither true nor false. And it's nonsense. And since it's nonsense, it's not actually a proposition. And since bivalence uh, has to do with propositions, it, it doesn't matter if there's nonsense. Is that is that a fair move? Do you think, or is, what? Is, is it- yeah, I. D- I mean, that's a really good question. I. I don't. It depends on what move, which move in the air that you're talking about. I mean, the the way that I understand, like the Samwise question, uh, because I think, in one sense, that referring to the abstract object of uh, the fictional object of Samwise, then there isn't reference failure there when we when we talk about that sort of thing. Okay, um, and so you can say, and this is what Zalta does. You can say that um, you know a certain proposition referring to this object is true or false. Um, now, picking out the exact abstract object that like like there's a recognition that it's probably like a family of abstract objects because think of it this way: uh, Spider Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter Parker. Think of how many different iterations yeah. uh, Peter Parker has uh, been represented by in terms of just the storytelling, um, different ethnicities, different ages, different you know people representing that sort of thing. Like you have the comics, you have the, the movies, yeah, you have all sorts of different kinds of and you know on 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 a view that's sympathetic to abstract realism, uh, all those sorts of things refer to to different abstract objects of some kind and have different properties. And, and those are, those are different stories and ones, but they can be very similar to each other. And so yeah. working that out would be really complex, but yeah. that may be one line of pursuit there. That's so cool too. And if, if any, like the comic nerds out there are like, no, I actually didn't like this iteration of Spider-Man, you know, pick up, pick that up and, and argue it and argue why he doesn't, he's not in proper instantiation of, you know, Peter Parker or something. That'd be good. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, yeah, or Jared, Batman. You know, any of the Batman. Yeah, movies. seriously. Yeah, that's a big one. Uh, yeah. Do you have a little bit of time to go into over like Lucy the Spider, or or can we should we not talk about that? Yeah, uh, I can. I can maybe generalize from the argument that you're referring to. Yeah, just like a, um, a challenge, maybe a challenge for for nominalist uh, conceptions of properties and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, good. Okay. So what, um, what you're referring to is an argument that is in, uh, another, another paper, I forget which journal, but, um, again, just stepping back a little bit, the one, um, challenge for nominalism is, uh, is that in ordinary talk, like we've said in this podcast, we're constantly referring to 
things that look like their properties, mm-hmm. look like they're abstract objects of some kind. And remember that nominalism doesn't like abstract objects. Right. Um, and so uh, the nominalist, one of the nominalist challenges is to try to come up with sentences that are equivalent in meaning that paraphrase the abstract objects away. Yeah. And so one of the, one of the papers that I wrote um, and that's under review is, is dealing with one attempt to um, paraphrase sentences that look like they're, yeah, that look like they are referring to properties in a way the paraphrase might be nominally acceptable, um, mm-hmm. nominalistically acceptable. And um, so I, I know this is, all, so I'm, I'm, I'm not explaining it as well as I could, um, but the idea is that um, we talk about things, let's put it this way, we talk about things like numbers, numbers look like they're abstract. We talk yeah. about um, something having the property of being two-legged, right, um, bipedal humans. Mm-hmm. And uh, those properties are like, just don't exist for a nominalist. And so Jared is having a little bit of connection problem, I think. Hopefully, he'll come back here. He was just talking about uh, bipeds and uh, the the problem of nominalism. What we would say the problem is, Jared, you back? I'm back now. Here we go. Sweet. There was a there was a glitch. Um, yeah. So I don't know the last thing that you heard. Um, so you're talking about bipeds, and you're just kind of setting out uh, the nominalist um, goal, like what what they're trying to do to get rid of. Abstract. Yeah, exactly. All right. So um, a, a lot of times in our language, ordinary language, even philosophical language, it looks like um, in order for us to express ourselves, we need to refer to abstract objects on some right. level, numbers, properties, that sort of thing. And there have been attempts to say, well, actually, we can paraphrase um, those things away so that we can have sentences that are equivalent in meaning that don't commit us to those sorts of entities. So um, I, I challenge that on a couple different levels. One, I don't think that you can get from some concrete entity to meaning in general, um, and something that has meaning. Uh, and, uh, so that's, that's sort of like, a, a the nexus of the metaphysical and linguistic question right there. Yeah, man, that's huge. So, so for, Let's go over it one more time for for the listeners, maybe for myself as well. So a a realist says, "Hey, look, uh, well, maybe we want to stick to linguistics." So like this sent, I write a sentence. Uh, the the cat is on the mat. I hate that one because everyone uses that, but it comes up. The yeah. the, the cat is on the mat. Uh, I write that, and you write that. Um, it's both it's both expressing the same thing. So a realist would go, yeah, it's expressing the proposition that the cat is on the mat. And you can say that in Spanish, you could have all different um, sentence tokens. Is that right? Yeah, more or less. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Everything, everything has qualifications. So uh, a, a nominalist doesn't want that third thing. They don't want that proposition out there floating around. They say, no, it's there's, I always think of Aristotle, like there's no, uninstantiated forms even even that though they're, you're having instantiated forms but there's no there's no abstract entity that is that proposition and so they're trying to get around that and then uh are you able to explain like like what's what's maybe one of the problems that you say you can't here's why you can't do that right uh the 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard to explain, but like the the question is like where. Okay, let me put it this way. Um, taking a look at a couple like data points, and so the let's say this: the entity that is die that entity in English it's die. Mm-hmm. In German, it's D. It's an article. It doesn't mean at all the same sort of thing. Yeah. And you, so you, that's a very simple illustration to say you can't look at the physical property ah. of some sort of linguistic expression to say, oh, that means whatever it is. Yeah. It's, it's the, the meaning has got to come from some other source. It's not intrinsic to that metaphysical object itself. Yeah coming from some extrinsic source. Um, and, you know, there are various ways of explaining that. But the the nominalist challenge is, where is it coming from? What's the relationship between those two? And if you're dealing with relations, you know, relations are not exactly nominalistically acceptable in some accounts uh, either. And so it's very hard to say, you know, let's, let's paint a, uh, a, a conception of language and how it works that's nominalistically acceptable that only deals with concrete entities. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's, let's take that DIE uh, example. And that means, well, it's got to be some other concrete entity, but what concrete entity would that be? Is it something in your mind? Well, that I don't have access to like a concrete entity in your mind. I can't see how it would mean that sort of thing. Yeah. Is it, like this event in the world. Well, it can't be that either. So trying to narrow down this, you know, concrete relation of some kind between the representation and what is represented, that's really where I poke at and go, I, I don't think that mm-hmm. there are really viable candidates, viable concrete candidates to say, oh, this is what, you know, the, the concrete meaning could be. Yeah. Dude, that's great. I really like that a lot. Yeah. I mean, I read, I read the paper, but now hearing you say it is, is really helpful as well. Just kind of metabolizing it. So someone might say, well, die in the German uh, language game. You, you have to know the language game. You have to be associated with that language game, whatever. Uh, and and yeah. likewise with the American one. And then even within the American one, you'd have to be associated with the gambling language game. If that is referring to that or uh, yeah. death or whatever, more generally, and then, so you might, you might push back and say, yeah, but what is that language? Like, where is that That's language it. game, right? Like, where is it an abstract? Cause then you're not a nominalist. Um, is it just, yeah. Where would that language be even if you're a nominalist? Yeah. And that's why, I mean, it's really important to distinguish like the metaphysical questions that we're asking and then the philosophy of language questions Ah. that we're asking on the other hand. Um, And so if we're starting out going, what are the objects involved with language? Uh And then we end up explaining it by some sort of like philosophical uh, or philosophy of language principle, like, like a language game that's sort of changing the the question a little bit. Um, And that's how I would respond to something like that is like, you're, no, no, I'm, I'm interested in objects. I'm interested in the metaphysics here of what's going on. If you're saying that, that only concrete things exist, then reference to like a language game is not going to do much work for you and pinning down because then you have to explain, well, okay, so I guess a language game is only concrete. Now yeah. tell me the metaphysics of a language game. Yes. Right. Yeah. They just inherit the problem again. 
Yeah. That's sweet. I love it. That's so good. <laughs> I'm getting all yeah. fired up. Yeah. Uh, for yeah. the listeners, uh, Jared, I don't know if you would endorse this or not, but I've, I've been reading uh, William Likens' Philosophy of Language. It's a uh, Routledge modern uh, or contemporary introduction. I love it. It's, it's been really good. Yeah, that's a great choice. Uh, I did a couple um, philosophy language independent studies with a professor here named Michael Hand, who's just beyond brilliant. He studied under uh, Jaco Hintica, mm. one of the founders of Modal Logic. So, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he, when he was recommending various works, if you want like kind of a one stop shop for philosophy of language, and you'll get into other issues as well, but like just a starting point. That's what he recommended as well. So I think oh, wow. you have you have okay. a good one there. Oh, that's great, um, Jared. In closing up, I wonder this. I hope this will be quick. Um, some some people, I, re- I like logic. I want to get into logic more. I just want to be that kind of guy who studies logic. And then, yeah. uh, uh, actually, one of your tweets, uh, you tweeted out about Girdle, and you said how he was he was like one of the one of the if not the best like uh, or most most influential philosopher of the 20th century, something like that. Um, does that sound right? Does that, you said something like that, right? Yeah, I forget what I said. I think it was. Uh, here's here's what I do think. Uh, yeah. Whether I misstated in a tweet or not, or you know how tweets can be. <laughs> but right, um, right. Totally. you know, from so I'm not a, a girdle expert by any stretch. Right. Sure. Um, but what has been communicated and passed down to me is, girl did about five things. One only one of which would have put him in the upper right. echelon pantheon of logicians. Yeah, and to do you know the five. So yeah, things involved with like completeness and completeness, all those proofs that he did, and other things that I'm sure I can't. I don't even have the capacity to understand. Um, and that just that just puts him at, at just you know there there are only a handful of people who have done that sort of thing. Now the everyday person is probably doesn't know who that is. And so influence can be really tricky um, to track and to measure in that sort of way. But in terms of how his work has influenced work after him, it's been at least an analytic philosophy, just incredibly systemic. And, you know, again, from, from what I hear, the, the reverberations of his work have been equivalent to Aristotle in some ways. Like his mind was just so expansive. He thought of it. He was just so creative in so many ways that that's really kind of the only thing that you can compare him to is just this brilliant creative mind that just blew up an entire field. Yeah. Yeah. The the dude's amazing. So, so because you said that I looked into girdle some more, I read um, a biography, uh, which was awesome. He hit, really tragic life. But yeah. uh, so I got in because of that. I said, well, now I want to study some mathematics or philosophy of math. Right. And, and I'm just trying to think, uh, I, I don't want to be reductionistic because I know I don't want to reduce math to logic because that's logicism. It seems like that's been debunked though. Now there's some like neo uh, logicists, but then we got language in there too. And you, uh, you could say, well, like the, the number one is uh, a linguistic entity. Maybe or you might, you might say that. Is there, is there a relation? Do you, do you have, a conception of the relation between like logic, math, and language? Are they all equally ultimate or is one more foundational than the other? I know that's a tricky question. It's really abstract, but. Yeah, that's, that's a million dollar question in philosophy. Um, I don't, let's see. So the three things, let's see, mathematics, logic, and language. Yeah. So some people will teach logic um, like 
couched in language, I think. Uh, there was this Oxford uh, course that was free online. And and a lot of, I think maybe Vern Poitras kind of goes this route a little bit of of logic is like a, a subset of of language. Um, he, he's maybe too tri-perspectival tri- to say that, but, and then other people I think go like with the logic route and just, just trying to, I don't know what to make sense. I know very few people have like a, this is what's up. And if they do, they get debunked, but um, it's just your own conception maybe. Yeah. Okay. Well, here's, uh, I don't think anything that I say will be that controversial, but here's how I might like triangulate a couple of those things Um, that you have, you have ordinary language Mm -hmm. and then you have formal languages, right? So you have like propositional logic and um, at least mathematically and logically, you start out by saying here, here's the language and this is what it looks like. And you define things, you define, you know, you say uh, we can have, um, you know, propositional variables here are going to be the operators like negation and, 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 or those are going to be the fixed operators that operate on various propositions within uh, propositional logic. And so there's going to be like your language and that's going to be this contained in a way, thing and then mm-hmm. you also have another formal language like the, the predicate calculus or predicate logic yeah. and that's going to build a little bit of on um propositional it, but it's going to have you know quantifiers and it's going to have it's going to treat operations a little bit differently in the in the syntax and the rules um and and then you have just like a ton of other logical languages as well that yeah. all are, are defined in a certain way and they're defined and um, worked out uh, sometimes in mathematical set theoretic ways. Yeah. And so you have things like um, predicates, which express properties and properties are basically sets of objects. And so the property mm. of being blue, the property of blue is just all the objects that, uh, you know, instantiate the property of being blue. And so you, you have like all your, your like furniture of the world, right? All your, all your basically er, er elements, all your objects down here. And then the property of blue just says, it's this kind of, you know, function that says, all right, grab me all the blue things that are in that level. And then yeah. that's a property, and that's expressed in set theoretic terms. That doesn't totally capture what we think properties are, but mm-hmm. again, it mathematically, set theoretically, um, expresses a part of what we're trying to get at when we talk about properties. Yeah. And so, mathematics, and, and I mean, set theory is sort of like the bedrock foundation of much of mathematics and logic. And yeah. that's um, so that's that's maybe how it start to see those different things. So you have ordinary language, formal languages, and in the formal language category, um, I mean, logic is the study of logical consequence, what follows from what. Mm-hmm. And then that, that sounds very easy or whatever, but then seeing that is just where the logical explosion comes from and how to symbolize these things. And they can be expressed in mathematical ways that make it extremely precise. Yeah. Okay. Man, that's so good. Yeah. Again, thanks for, thanks for indulging me on, on all this stuff. It's been fantastic. Uh, yeah. I geek out. I like talking about it. Yeah. This was awesome. Uh, so, so this is, uh, this is the, the first, hopefully of, of several more. I know you're, you're going to be, uh, you know, writing your stuff and busy, but I'd love to get you back on, uh, pump you for more information. Thanks so much for, for being such a good sport with us and, and seriously helping me level up. Uh, and I know our listeners are going to love that too. 
Um, this, oh, actually, Jared, where can people find you? So uh, I said Twitter because I've followed you for a couple of years and there's so many books that you'll post and, and when one's interesting, I just grab them. So, so go find uh, Jared on Twitter. Is there any, anything else you'd like to plug in website or anything? Good question. Thanks. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah, my Twitter engagement has been down quite a bit since I've uh, started the PhD, but, uh, so fair warning. The only other thing that I can think of is if you're, um, interested in some logical questions, I I have done a couple like logical problems on my YouTube channel. Hmm. Um, if you, if you search, uh, language proof and logic or like LPL, you'll see those worked out. Um, I bet, maybe zero people will be interested in that sort of thing. But uh, some, some student, because it's a textbook that gets used at different colleges okay, and right. different kinds of ways, then maybe that'll be interesting. Yeah. Uh, that's the only other thing that I can think of. Yeah. Every okay. once in a while I write on medium, but uh, that's few and far between too. Yeah. I was going to bring that up. How, how you can, you post this on Twitter, right? If someone followed you on Twitter, they can find your medium posts. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Cause some of those are really, really helpful. You did one, kind of a takedown of someone who was using uh, some kind of logic. I don't remember the exact language, but that was, that was super bomb. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been Parker's Pensies. Uh, we can talk about this more. Lord willing, we will. But for now, it's going to have to do it. Uh, as always, all glory to God.